I said this is uh, Palm Sunday, so I'm going to read uh, the story of Jesus entering into Jerusalem from Mark's Gospel. Uh, It's Mark chapter 11, beginning at verse 1. If you want to follow um, in the Bibles, uh, that is page 1016. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this, tell him, the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went to the temple. He looked around at everything. But since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, we pray that you would open your word to us, that you would speak to us by your spirit to the glory of Jesus and the praise of your name. Amen. Um, Before I was ordained, I used to work um, in London. And I remember one uh, one lunchtime walking through the centre of London with a colleague from work. Uh, We were walking up one of the main roads and suddenly uh, there was a, 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 a sound of sirens And it was kind of unmistakable. Something big was happening. And so we kind of stopped, and the crowd around us stopped, and uh, two um, police motorbikes came up, and we were at at traffic lights, and they stopped right in front of us, and a policeman said, stay there. And it was like, I'm not going to mess with you. So it was like, we take a step back. Two more police bikes went bombing down. Two more police bikes went bombing down. A police van went flying through. It must have been going 70 miles an hour in in the streets of London. A black Land Rover went by, another black Land Rover went by, another black Land Rover went by. A police car went by, and then a black limousine went by with the windows all blacked out. Two more police bikes went, a police car went, the policeman looked at us, said hello, off he went. Everybody was kind of stunned. We turned to each other. Who was that? I have no idea. It could have been the Queen, it could have been Prince Charles, it could have been Tony Blair, it could have been uh, a president from America. I have no idea who it was, but I know this. Uh, they were really important. <laughs> and I was not going to get in the way of those guys. Kings in the ancient world knew that they were important too. In the time of Jesus, there was a bestseller. It was a book that was uh, written and printed, told the life of a king. Uh, The king was called Emperor Caesar Augustus, and the book was called this, The Achievements of the Divine Augustus. 
Um, it was uh, written on tablets of bronze. Uh, these tablets of bronze were mass-produced and sent to every corner of the Roman Empire. They were read aloud in public squares and meeting houses. Um, let me give you a little excerpt from uh, the achievements of the divine Augustus. Three times I triumphed at oration. Twenty-one times I was named emperor. The Senate voted yet more triumphs for me, which I declined because of the triumphs I had already won. The Senate voted thanks for me to the immortal gods. Fifty-five times in my triumphs, nine kings or children of kings were led before my chariot in chains. I have been consul 13 times. I was the highest ranking senator for 40 years. I held the office of pontific maximum. All citizens with one accord unceasingly prayed in every holy place for my well-being. A golden shield was given me by the senate and the people of Rome on account of my courage, my clemency, my justice and my piety. I excelled in all influence. You've probably realised by now that the achievements of the divine Augustus was an autobiography. It was written by Caesar Augustus himself. It's published by him. It was financed by him, and he commissioned it to be read in every corner of the Roman Empire. The philosopher Alistair MacIntyre notes that humility was not considered a virtue in the ancient world. Aristotle wrote uh, describing what a great man looks like. And his great-souled man is extremely proud. Aristotle writes this. The great man despises honours offered by the common people. He indulges in conspicuous consumption, for he likes to own beautiful and useless things, since they are marks of his independence and display his wealth. Imagine living in a world like that. Imagine living in a world obsessed by status like that. Imagine uh, living in a world that likes to uh, show off the beautiful and useless things that people have. Imagine a world where you had something like Twitter or Instagram, where you could instantly tell everybody how beautiful you are, how fantastic your possessions were, and what lovely places you were going to. Imagine living in a world like that. It's actually not that difficult, is it? Caesar Augustus was at the top of the pyramid. Below the kings, you had the senators who ran things under Caesar. Below them, the equestrians, those who owned horses for military affairs. Then the decurions, wealthy citizens who governed cities and towns. These were the elite. These were the it people. These were the people who had a cavalcade that would go before them. Below them, you had the nobodies of the Roman Empire. But even the nobodies had a hierarchy. 
Some were citizens of the empire. Some were freedmen. Below these were the lowest of the low, the slaves. Into this world, a child is born. Into this world, a son is given. And he'll be called Wonderful Counselor. He'll even be called Almighty God. He'll be known as the Prince of Peace. The government will be upon his shoulders. And his birth, shepherds will attend. Angels will sing his praises. Magi will bring him gifts. King Herod will try and slaughter him. His family will be forced to flee to Egypt. He will grow up in Galilee, a northern backwater of Israel. He will learn a trade at his father's workshop. He will minister to the blind, the paralyzed, the leper, the demonized. He will find favor not with royal courts, senators and kings, but with tax collectors and the outcast. He will comfort those who mourn. He will forgive those who sin. He will draw alongside those whom others will avoid. He will not write a book called The Achievements of the Divine Carpenter. But books will be written about him. He will talk about leadership. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's the King of kings and Lord of lords. In Colossians we read that he is the image of the invisible God. In him dwelt all the fullness of God fully. He is the divine word made flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the bread of heaven. He is the light of the world. He has come to reveal what God looks like. The Greeks and the Romans of Jesus' day think they know what God, or rather the God's, look like. They look amazing. They look perfect. You can see their statues in Greece and Rome and in the British Museum today. Diana, Artemis, Mars, Zeus, Olympus. Utter perfection in human form. Impossibly beautiful. Physically perfect. These gods live lives of pleasure and indulgence. They live far from the worlds of men and women. Every fantasy of theirs is fulfilled. Every whim of theirs is obeyed. Then and today, these idols, these false gods were worshipped and emulated. Oh, to look like a Greek god. Oh, to be like them. Oh, to be perfect. Oh, to be wealthy. Oh, to recline on fine couches and have food spread before you. Oh, to have slaves attending to your every need. 
And yet Jesus is the one who reveals God perfectly. And nobody knows what he looked like. In fact, it says that we knew him but esteemed him not. We don't know what Jesus looked like, but we know what he did. We know of his life. We know of his death. We know of his resurrection. We know of his words and his actions. These reveal God's true nature. Jesus shows what God really is like. He rides into Jerusalem as her rightful king. He is the true son of David. He comes to take his throne, to receive his crown, to inherit his kingdom. But he comes not riding on a war horse, a great charger, a symbol of strength and power and virility. But he comes on a colt, a humble donkey, a beast of burden. His throne will be high and lifted up. But it will not be made of silver. It will not be set with precious stones. It will be made of wood. And he will hang upon it rather than be seated on it. He will be crowned king. But his crown will not be a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. He'll be heralded as king. Not by royal heralds or trumpeters, but by a sarcastic note placed above his head. And he will enter into his kingdom, not in a royal procession, not with outriders going before him, but when he breathes his last. What is God like? What does God look like? He doesn't look like an emperor writing books in praise of his own achievements. He doesn't look like a Greek god or Roman goddess, beautiful without wrinkle or blemish. What does God look like? God looks like a broken man dying on a cross and with his final words asking forgiveness for those who torture him and inviting into paradise those who trust in him. What does God look like? God looks like Jesus on a cross saying, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. How do we respond to such a king? How do we follow such a king? How do we enter into the kingdom of such a king? The last verse of our reading, verse 11, says this. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. He looked around at everything. What's he looking for? What's he looking around for? 
What's he expecting to see? Luke tells us in his uh, telling of this story, in his gospel, that on this night, Jesus wept over Jerusalem. And he tells us the reason why this king weeps over his city. Because they didn't know what would bring them peace. The prince of peace has been in their midst, but they haven't recognized him. They've cried, Hosanna, save us. But they've not understood what they were saying. It's all just been street theater for them. The same crowds will call crucify just a few short days later. How do you respond to such a king? How do you follow such a king who weeps over his people and doesn't seek to subdue them but to serve them? What do you say to one who says, I am the bread of life? You say, Lord, I'm hungry. What do you say to one who says, I am the light of the world? You say, Lord, I'm blind. What do you say to one who says, I am the gate? You say, Lord, let me enter into life through you. What do you say to one who says, I am the good shepherd? You say, Lord, I am lost. Lead me home. What do you say to one who says, I am the resurrection and the life? You say, I am dead in my sins. Forgive me. What do you say to the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life? You say, Lord, show me how to follow you. What do you say to the one who says, I am the true vine, abide in me? You say, Lord, I surrender. I rest in you. Jesus goes back to Bethany, and Bethany is the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And in John's Gospel, uh, we see a little scene that happens before the events of this day, where Jesus is at, uh, at their house with his disciples, preparing to enter into Jerusalem. And we see there how you respond to such such a king. And it's the example not of Lazarus, not of the disciples, but the example of Mary. And we're going to see how Mary responds to such a king as this. Six days before the Passover... Jesus went to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, the man he had raised from death. They prepared a dinner for him there, which Martha helped serve. Lazarus was one of those who were sitting at the table with Jesus. Then Mary took a whole pint of a very expensive perfume made of pure nard. 
poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped them with her hair. The sweet smell of the perfume filled the whole house. One of Jesus' disciples, Judas Iscariot, the one who was going to betray him, said, Why wasn't this perfume sold? For 300 silver coins. And the money given to the poor. He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He carried the money bag and would help himself from it. Leave her alone. Let her keep what she has for the day of my burial. You will always have poor people with you. But you will not always have me. 